This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're looking this evening at verses 11 through 14, the final verses of this epistle. Hear the Word of God. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. And Father, as these things are spiritually discerned, and we pray for the light that only your Holy Spirit can give. We pray, Father, that you would feed us now in this evening time on your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have come to the end of our study of what we have as Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth that occurred to me as I was putting the title in the bulletin, Finally, Brothers, which is just the first two words of the last text. That may be the response of some of you, Finally, Brothers. Um, However, I hope that the study of this letter has been profitable to you and helpful as we've gone through uh, this letter of Paul's, it probably is, in many ways, his most personal letter. Uh, by way of recap, in closing out the study and by way of review over where we've been, I want to read what one writer has written that sort of goes back and uh, kind of captures the letter as a whole, kind of covers and reminds you of where we've been. Corinth had been a tough go for the Apostle Paul. Similarities to modern Western culture were so striking that we could well call Paul's epistles first and second Californians. Corinth's 80-year rise from the cold ashes of classical Corinth was that of a first-century boomtown overflowing with ex-slaves, that is the freedmen, and ex-Roman soldiers and entrepreneurs of every ethnic stripe and background, including a substantial Jewish community. Corinth was a sports and entertainment culture. The good, the bad, and the ugly were there, side by side. Business, sport, tourism, sex, religious pluralism. Nevertheless, Paul and his cohorts had planted a remarkable church in Corinth, and all went quite well until the arrival of those whom Paul called super-apostles, men who preached a strange amalgam of Christianity and Old Covenant strictures and triumphalist theology that imported the values of Corinthian culture right into the church. From the super apostles' perspective, Paul suffered too much. His ministry lacked luster. His preaching was dull. He had no ecstatic stories to tell. He had no letters of recommendation. 
and he was a poor laborer who worked with his hands. Tragically, the great apostle found himself rejected by many in the very church he had founded. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul does basically two things. He defends his own apostleship and his own authority uh, by asserting the nature of his call, the reality of his sufferings, uh, and the authority that Christ had given him as an apostle, uh, and defended his authority by appealing to their personal recollection of him, to what they remembered him to be, the kind of character, the kind of ministry that he had in their midst. But not only does Paul defend his own apostleship, his own authority, but he also defines the nature of real ministry. The critics pointed to his suffering and said, what kind of man is this? Paul pointed to his suffering and said, I am following in the footsteps of Christ. And that this suffering and that this weakness and God's strength and weakness was the very essence of Christian ministry far from disqualifying Paul or diminishing Paul. He gloried in his weakness because it's precisely there that the strength and the power, the grace of God shines through. In fact, it was precisely the opposite with these super apostles who were so full of themselves, there was no room for the Spirit of God. They're proud of themselves. They're taken with their abilities and uh, all of that, that um, God wasn't present there. And in fact, uh, Paul says in so many words, these are not servants of Christ, they're servants of Satan, and they are deceiving you. Well, we come to the end of the letter, and uh, Paul concludes with his final words. In many ways, we saw last week, he essentially says, this is your final warning. Uh, I am coming. I hope it won't have to be with uh, discipline, but it will be if necessary. Well, now he closes out his letter, and it's uh, striking to note uh, the kinds of things that he says here, especially in light of what he's written in the letter. Uh, but it basically falls into two parts, uh, that of admonition and that of benediction. First of all, the admonition we see in verses 11 through 13, the final things that he's going to say to them. Uh, finally, uh, brothers, he says. Paul has called them brothers precisely twice before in this letter. Once in chapter 1, verse 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And then again, uh, in a turning point in the letter, uh, after describing his interactions with him, he, chapter 8, where he begins to discuss the offering, the collection that was being taken, complete change of subject. Uh, in 8, verse 1, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been uh, given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, he said some harsh things to them and to some of those in their midst especially, but he closes out by referring to them affectionately as brothers. Uh, certainly that uh, encompasses the women of the congregation as well. The ESV footnotes that brothers and sisters, uh, I think certainly the context would indicate Paul had the women of the congregation in mind, as well as the men, and included there. Uh, he's referring to all of them. Uh, finally, brothers, he says, rejoice. And that's his first admonition in a, in a series of just rapid-fire instructions. In fact, many of these in Greek are just one word. 
uh, just in staccato form, giving them these series of, of closing uh, in, in instructions, admonitions, as he concludes the letter. First of all, he says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Paul's talked about some heavy things. He's been very personal with them. He said some very strong things to them. But he comes back to the fact that as Christians, while there are heavy things we have to deal with, whether it's personal difficulties or uh, problems in the church, uh, at the same time, we're not to let that and those kinds of things rob us of our joy in Christ. If you're familiar with Paul's letters, you know that uh, when you think of rejoicing, the letter that most quickly comes to mind is that of Philippians, where Paul repeatedly refers to joy, to rejoicing, to his own rejoicing, uh, rejoicing in the Lord, all the while writing this letter while in prison uh, and having others who are, at least from what we gather from what Paul has written in that letter, taking advantage of Paul's um, being confined to sort of promote their own name and their own ministry. And Paul, uh, big-hearted as he is, says, well, whatever their motivation, I rejoice that Christ is preached. Their hearts before the Lord, their motivation isn't my business, but whatever their motivation is, if they are preaching Christ, then I rejoice in that. And so he reminds them of that too. With all they've talked about, with all they've been through, uh, our relationship with Christ should be a source of rejoicing. We've been forgiven. We're right with God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we don't want to let our sin and our problems and the difficulties we face, whether ourselves or in relationship with others or in the context of the church, to diminish that and remove that. Because first and foremost, Christianity is about having been reconciled to God, and that is something over which to rejoice. So that's his first admonition. The second one, also there in verse 11, aim for restoration. In a sense, that is what Paul has been doing in this letter all along, aiming to restore himself to their good graces. But it's not just their relationship with Paul that has suffered. Uh, as you know, uh, the church in Corinth, there was, there was need for restoration among themselves. Whether you look at First um, Corinthians and the various factions that seem to be present, those who favored various of the apostles, or in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, where reference to discipline in the church is necessary uh, to apparently the, the divisive effects of the so-called super apostles in the church, uh, and perhaps the group that was being persuaded by them was, was a minority in the church. Uh, this was a church in need for restoration, not only with the apostle, but among themselves. Uh, Paul's mentioned a discipline case and how to address that and deal with that. And certainly in any case like that, the hope is not to punish, but it is to restore. Certainly where they have been alienated from one another over differences of opinion, through what has been going on, uh, Paul doesn't want to see them. Uh, continue fragmented, continue divided, continue at odds with one another. And so he doesn't say be restored. 
he says, aim for restoration. Uh, restoration not on a cheap piece, but restoration on the basis of truth. They will always have their disagreements. Anytime you get a church of two people together, they will uh, have their, their disagreements. And so that is uh, what Paul is saying here. That is what they are to aim for. That is to be the overriding uh, and, and, and overarching and long-range concerns. They be restored. The third admonition that he gives to them in verse 11 is to comfort one another. Um, for a couple reasons. One, as believers, they were among them those who were suffering various difficulties simply in living life, just like we all do, whether it's financial difficulties or health problems, all of these things. And uh, just as he referred to rejoicing, uh, this is a situation where the church had fallen into problems of theological, of theological nature, of, of political nature, and uh, just as they're not to forget to rejoice because of what they have in Christ, because of their problems, they're also not to forget that as Christians, their task is to minister to one another. And so Paul reminds them to comfort one another uh, in the midst of discussion, in the midst of trying to figure out what to do, in the midst of these various factions, all of this, Paul says, do not forget that you are to minister to one another. You are to comfort one another in Christ. And uh, if we go through the, the scriptures and uh, study all of the various one another's of the Christian life and of the Christian church, uh, certainly this would stand out in that, to comfort one another, uh, to be there for each other regardless of what differences they might have. Likewise, number four uh, in this list of admonitions, and also in verse 11, is that they should agree with one another. Now, that's been part of the problem, hasn't it? And there's a sense in which Paul has been arguing that throughout this entire letter, and he could summit, summarize it with that, that they come to some sort of consensus and agreement with each other. Again, not on a cheap or superficial or shallow basis, um, there will always be disagreement, but again, a commitment to agree with one another on the basics of the truth of the gospel, um, including the kinds of things that Paul has written to them in this letter, in these, these letters that we have. They didn't have the New Testament. They did have these letters. Uh, they had that much of the New Testament, at least, and so uh, Paul is telling them to agree with one another, not to just be contrary, difficult, not to just look for opportunities to disagree, but rather as much as possible that they would agree with each other. Again, very much to the point, the fifth admonition in verse 11, live in peace. Live in peace with each other. Um, apparently they haven't been doing that a whole lot. There have been some very substantial matters that they have had to deal with in the church that have troubled the peace of the church. However, it is possible to have very significant problems or matters come up that have to be dealt with in the church over which there may be differences of opinion, and yet also in the process to preserve peace in the church. 
uh, as reflected in these kinds of things that Paul is talking about, to continue to have joy, to continue to comfort each other, to continue to minister to each other, in spite of differences of opinion, uh, in spite of different points of view, different outlooks, um, to be able to live in peace with each other. However, this is the first one that Paul adds something to. Live in peace, he says, and the God of love and peace will be with you. In another place, Paul speaks of grieving the Holy Spirit, um, particularly through disunity, through strife in the church brought about by selfishness, brought about by uh, a lack of love. And uh, here Paul hints at that very thing, that they are to live in peace, and as they seek to live in peace with each other, the God of love and peace, the God who is the source of love and peace, the God who is characterized by love and peace, will be present with them. Of course, the implication, the flip side of that is if they are purposefully serving themselves, if they're purposefully alienating one another, selfishly uh, hurting each other, they won't experience that blessing of God's presence. They will be grieving the Holy Spirit and hurting only themselves. Verse 12, another admonition. Greet one another with a holy kiss. A holy kiss, not, not uh, any other kind. Uh, that's an interesting statement. And we tend to think, well, that's just a cultural thing, kind of like shaking hands. Well, that might be our cultural equivalent. But what Paul is saying here is actually somewhat uh, strange, a little bit radical. Uh, it was not unknown to greet people with a kiss in that society. However, that was typically reserved for family members or very close friends, it, and it certainly was not something that would be done across uh, various lines of social strata, uh, but within family, maybe close friends. So when Paul is saying that, he is telling these people who have been divided among each other, who have been at odds with each other, and certainly at odds with Paul, to greet one another with a holy kiss, to demonstrate that closeness, because they are, in fact, family in Christ because they are a close group of people and should be in Christ with all that they have in common in Christ. And so he instructs them to greet each other in this way that, that demonstrates that. Now, remember, most likely they would be gathered while this letter is being read. And so the application should be pretty much uh, practically immediate uh, as the letter is about to conclude, and, and that would be, would be that. Uh, but he also reminds them, not only is there that connection within the church, that closeness to one another, but they themselves are part of a larger body, the church at large. He says, all the saints greet you. Saints there, of course, not referring to spiritual uh, superstars or standouts, but the word means holy ones. That's a way of referring to Christians. Any Christian is a saint in, in terms of how the scriptures use the term. All the saints greet you. Now, they may not be close enough to greet them with a holy kiss, but uh, Paul just reminds them that they're not alone. They're part of a larger network of, of churches, net, network of believers, and uh, Paul sends along their greetings. Now, those are his admonitions. Again, just rapid-fire, bullet-point, uh, closing thoughts as Paul is getting ready to, uh, to shut down this letter, finish it up. But he concludes with a benediction after giving them these various admonitions. In verse 14, and you, of course you're familiar with it, you've heard it 
I don't know how many times. Um, it's interesting to study the scriptures, the, the, the benedictions that are there. There's some question raised. Well, is a benediction, a, should it be a pronouncement? Should it be a prayer? Um, yes, uh, absolutely. Um, it seems, based on the language here, if you study them in scriptures, that they really are a pronouncement. They're not, they're not a, a prayer as such, although I suppose they certainly could be. Um, you're basically, you know, no, no minister has the power to actually himself convey the benefits of, they're stated in the benediction, uh, but certainly uh, standing in the stead of Christ, you know, and, and, and uh, declaring the word of God to pronouncing the, not the, his blessing, but the blessing of Christ on his own church. Uh, we could go through and do a tour of benedictions. Uh, it's interesting, really the first one you find, and really the the prototype, the benediction, was the Aaronic benediction, Aaron, uh, that was given to be declared upon the people of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance or his face upon you and give you peace. And we read there in number six, at that point, uh, the Lord says, So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. And so it, it, it says they're, they're putting my name on my people, that pronouncement of blessing. Of course, it didn't come from Aaron. It came from the Lord. But it was declaring the people to be under the blessing, under the protection, under the favor of God, and God will bless them. Uh, as you look through Paul's letters, you find all kinds of benedictions, some very brief, some a little longer. Uh, use this one this morning, Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Uh, sometimes they're very short. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Uh, Galatians six eighteen, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Um, this one from Hebrews, which I do not think Paul wrote, do not think this was his, but... Uh, one of the longer ones, certainly I think in the New Testament. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, you know the one from Jude. Uh, I don't know the one from Jude. You know the one from Jude. Uh, yeah, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. You'll notice through that nothing is said of God's people. That's all about God. Technically, we would call that an ascription, a praise to God, not necessarily a benediction upon the people of God, although it is often used in uh, that way. And then finally, the last uh, benediction that we have from Paul at the end of Second Timothy 4.22, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. And prominent in Paul's benedictions is this uh, pronouncement of grace upon the people of God. Uh, because ultimately, after all, what else is there? What else do we have uh, but grace? And in grace, we have everything else. We have God's name. We have his blessing. We have his favor. We have his presence. All given to us through the grace of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we look particularly at this benediction, you'll notice, of course, that it is uh, very evidently Trinitarian. 
Um, Paul writes this almost spontaneously, and he doesn't really write it in, in, a, in a logical or theological order as we might study it in a, in a theology textbook. Uh, you know, you'd study God the Father, first person of the Trinity, and then uh, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. Um, Paul is, is naming them, I think, much more spontaneously than that, and he really kind of names them in the order of salvation, not necessarily in the order that we might talk about them in theology. He starts with Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, God, the grace of Christ who uh, gave himself on the cross, who loved us and gave himself for us, not because we deserved it, not because we had earned that, but out of his sheer love, out of his desire to redeem us, giving himself as the Lamb of God uh, mentions that. The love of God. And he doesn't name the Father specifically, but in this context that would certainly be clear. Uh, but the love of God is commented on various places in Scripture. Romans 5, God showed his love for, in, for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And then the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, as believers, we become such, at least in terms of our experience of redemption, from our repentance and faith in Jesus, and then being reconciled to God and knowing the love of God. But then, in terms of our experience, now the Spirit is working prior to this to bring us to Christ, but in terms of our experience, then uh, the Holy Spirit who fills us, who empowers us, who assures us of our right standing now with God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, fellowship with the Trinity uh, and a fellowship with one another that is inspired by and strengthened by the, um, the, the work of the Holy Spirit who convicts us when we need to go to someone and apologize, who convicts us when we need to forgive someone for something that they have done and we realize we're angry and, and bitter and unforgiving about it. And so Paul closes out this letter with these admonitions and with a benediction that I think is more than just a matter of form, uh, more than just uh, dashing off a fixed closing, uh, but a genuine declaration of what they have, the grace of Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And notice he says, be with you all, not with some of you, not with those who happen to favor me, uh, but he's writing to a church, to a congregation, and he, he, he pronounces this benediction upon them all, all of them, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that was their great hope, were those three things. And they are our hope as well. Pray. Our Father, we thank you for this letter. Thank you for the truths that it contains. And thank you, Father, for the one who wrote it, for his heart for you and his heart for the church and his heart for the church in Corinth. Father, we thank you for the truths of this letter. We pray that they would bear fruit in our own lives and in our congregation as well. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.